outer space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The from outer space. Are we ready to go or what? Yeah, it's it's on. We're waiting on you. We didn't even caterpillar this. I have oh. pressed record. I think it's pronounced and we're off. record. Well, boys, it's none other than another episode of the podcast from outer space with your boy Rob Scott. We got Adam Narlock in the house tonight. Hey guys, thanks for listening. And as always, it's Ryan Scott. Hello and happy Labor Day. And a special shout out because. This podcast is brought to you by none other than Baja Blast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's no secret that uh, we're actually sponsored by Pamp Coffee. So if you want to go check them out, uh, it's actually local to San Diego. You can check them out on Etsy.com slash shop slash Pamp Coffee. And it's some damn good coffee, folks. I'm not lying to you. It's not just because they're giving us free coffee. It's because it's the shit. Because so they're not. If you haven't already checked it out, they are giving 30% of all proceeds to the Humane Society this month. So, you know, helping out the animals and you're getting yourself some damn good coffee. So, love the once animals. again, Pamp Coffee, guys. Love them. And uh, tonight, we're swinging back over to the old UFO files. Ryan, take them away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tonight we are getting into some... I got to say, guys, these ones are insane. Kenneth Arnold UFO case, and we're also going to look at the Maury Island affair. Now, now was that before he started doing the show? <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 what was it? Uh, I believe um, Daryl Bryant. You're thinking Daryl Strawberry. <laughs> uh, no, I think Daryl Bryant at It's Daryl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Bitches know I'm not a father, yo. Never been on the fucking Maury show. What did he say? <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> okay. So, D Money. Little, little uh, uh, fucking with a goon. Little overview on uh, this episode. We are going to give you a brief history on the man responsible for this legendary sighting, as well as get into some eyewitness testimony, discuss the sighting as a whole. Um, it's nationwide impact, nationwide news coverage, corroboration by several notable sightings, and mm. some strange events. And of course, got to play Skeptic Corner, Rob's favorite over here, <laughs> with some possible explanations. Now, up top, got to cite some sources. UFOs in Wartime by Mac Maloney. The Hynek UFO Report by J. Allen Hynek. UFO Evaluating the Evidence by Bill Yenny, uh, Project1947.com once again, and The Coming of the Saucers by Kenneth Arnold himself. A uh, guy actually wrote a book on the account. Now, Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting, Maury Island, either of you guys heard of this one? Never uh, heard of it. Not until seeing the outline for this podcast. <laughs> okay, so another new one um, for both of you guys. So let's get into... Kenneth Arnold himself, uh, born in March of 1915 up in Minnesota. Yeah. Shout out to our one fan from Minnesota, Evenson. Oh, yeah. I think we got a few other listeners in Minnesota, though. Hey. Um, but Probably some Adam's exes. This guy, <laughs> this guy grew up in Montana. And also, fun fact, another Eagle Scout we See? got here. 
Um, yeah, this ooh, guy's ooh. an Eagle Scout. Ladies love a man in uniform, as we found out <laughs> on Bumble. Yeah, they do. Um, so the ladies probably loved this guy. And big-time football player and diver in college. Boom. Uh, a lot of diving in Minnesota going on? I, I guess. Muff diving? Um, Muff diving. <laughs> no, uh, throughout, He's an expert. Throughout the That's mid- why Mari's involved. <laughs> <laughs> throughout the uh, mid-30s, this guy was a Red Cross life-saving examiner. This guy is like living. I feel like I live this guy's life. Okay. Okay. You and you have seen a UFO. I we saw it right in my house during <laughs> might, that one episode. Might as well be the Adam Narlock story. Are you going to write a Fuck book? Next? This guy, yeah, man. So in 1938, after graduating from uh, University of Minnesota, he worked for Red Comet Inc. of Littleton, Colorado, uh, at a automatic firefighting apparat- apparatus <laughs> manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> what is let's, uh, let's reread that one uh, so this guy worked at a manufacturer of the automatic firefighting apparatus now Adam you were an EMT what is that that's an EMT not a firefighter dude same fucking thing I close mean, it sounds enough. like it puts out fires on its own is that like a hose I guess fire extinguisher okay so know, this guy's working for this company uh, and in 1940 and we already know he, he knows a lot about the hose <laughs> Decides to get into business for himself. Now, basically, his business handled, distributed, sold, and installed all types of automatic and manual firefighting equipment, which is what led him to extensive travel in the Pacific Northwest. Now, is that like maybe like a fire extinguisher that you would take with That's you? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's like sprinklers, um, that foam stuff, like really anything that puts out fire. <laughs> a lot of systems. Water. Um, yeah, electrics. Um, I believe it's called an apparatus. <laughs> and uh, Pacific Northwest is where this guy was traveling around, and this is where the sighting takes place. Now, not only, so not only is Ken, we're going to call him Ken this episode. Um, not only can we call him Kenny? Okay, Kenny. Okay, Ken. Not only is Ken this uh, lucrative fire system businessman, but he was also a very skilled and experienced pilot. Oh, he's just dipping his hands into everything. Yes. Now, uh, I guess this is how he sold shit. Just flew around and uh, had over nine thousand total flying hours, uh, almost half of which were devoted to search and rescue mercy flying efforts. Now, what is that? Have you guys ever heard of that? I'm going to be honest with you. I have not. Mercy Flyers, is that like when Philadelphia plays Pittsburgh in the playoffs and we whoop that ass? Well, um, T-Bag, you, time, you were an EMT. What is that? It sounds like people like if you're going hiking and someone gets hurt or something and you need to get airlifted out. Like This sounds like the okay. precursor. To, to me, that's what it sounds like. I don't know. Okay. Okay. So uh, January of 47, old Ken, for a cool 5K, buys a new Collair airplane. Um, which is an airplane designed for high-altitude takeoffs and uh, short, rough field use. Uh, perfect for the types of flying he did. Looks like um, a classic tiny propeller plane, like in uh, Indiana Jones, right? Mm, yep. You know? Uh, so this guy's flying around in this, and the man himself in his book says, it takes a great deal of practice and judgment to be able to land in most any cow pasture. <laughs> and get out without injuring your airplane. 
The runways are limited, the altitude is high, and some of the fields and places that I go in my work. Now, Ken had landed in 823 cow pastures in his day, and over his thousands of flying hours, flat tire was his greatest mishap. And I'm just going to stop you right there and let you know that Mercy Flyers is actually a medical effort group that delivers medical supplies and services to impoverished countries in Africa. And I'm just going to stop you right there and say in Rob's time driving, he's definitely gotten a lot more than a flat tire as his greatest mishap. You're unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) So driving um, through a lot of cow pastures there, though, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Now let's preface this sighting a little bit. Um, So Mount Rainier, Washington. Washington State. Beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's where this takes place for the most part. I mean, we got to remember it's from the air, so a lot of ground we're covering. A lot of cow pastures. Yes. Now, a few other things. So, this was the first post war sighting uh, in the U.S. to gain uh, nationwide news coverage for the most part. I mean, this is uh, mostly credited with being one of the first of the quote unquote modern era of UFO sightings. I mean, yeah, there were sightings before this one. You had the scare ships of 1909, uh, ghost flyers of 33 to 34, Foo Fighters of World War II that we talked about. Check Check that episode. Yep. Yep. And the ghost rockets of 46. Now, J. Allen Hynek, which at this point I'm thinking we could probably do a whole episode on him. Um, He's the scientist they brought that the military, the Air Force, brought on to debunk UFO sightings, and he actually became a believer. Now, he says Arnold's sighting was number 17 in Project Sign, which was the precursor to Project Blue Book. Uh, And first episode right there. Oh, yeah, obviously. And, um, but for some reason, this one just picked up the most coverage and became, um, the biggest at the time until. Roswell, New Mexico crash, which was a mere three weeks after this one, guys. Coincidence? We think not. Uh, Also, keep in mind, just like our Foo Fighters episode, you know, pre-Roswell. So, uh, the nation as a whole, like, they didn't really think of seeing a a disc as like a UFO like we do today as like, oh, it's automatically aliens. They didn't know what the hell these things were. And nobody had a sense of, uh, what do you call it? Something to compare it to. They didn't they have thought them. it was Russians. Exactly. They thought it was these damn Russians. Still do. <laughs> and uh, Oh, and yeah, this one. So right before Roswell kind of got uh, covered up, so to speak, you know, overshadowed by Roswell. A lot of people just kind of forgot about this one, wrote it off as, um, you know, whatever. All right, so let's get into the sighting itself. Well, let's get into it. So set set the scene. We'll set the scene for you guys. Um, the year is nineteen forty-seven. Great year. <laughs> Glenn Miller's probably playing on the radio. Um, World War Two ended. You know what? Two years. <laughs> and uh, you know people are having a good time. They're partying it up. Um, you know, we defeated the Japanese, we defeated the Nazis. Um, back to so, back world champs. <laughs> <laughs> great year. Um, the month is June, and the day is Tuesday the 24th. Now, upon finishing his work for the Central Air Services at Chehalis, Chehalis. Chehalis Washington, at about 2 p.m., old Kenny took off 
from Chehalis Airport on his way to Yakima, Washington. He made a brief detour for about an hour to search for a large marine transport that had gone down near the southwest side of Mount Rainier. And to this date, has never been fully recovered. Um, basically, this like big, huge marine transport plane was carrying like something like 32 marines, crashed, um, you know, horrible, all dead. And I think it was like, it just got buried in the snow. Nobody found it. I think one guy found like a piece of it and they, it was like such high altitude. They couldn't get anyone to dig through the ice, you know, brutal at the time. They didn't know where it was. So they offered like a 5k reward to anyone who could find it. So this guy figures hell. Mm. Um, yeah, I'll go look for this fucking thing. I got a plane. I'm doing business up there. Um, he goes Little searching DB around. Cooper action. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, almost like that. A little different. <laughs> but uh, so Ken says the air was smooth as silk that day. And it was a real pleasure flying. Uh, so basically, he just set the plane in the direction of Yakima and um, just kind of sat in his plane, observing the sky, the terrain, basically just sitting there, you know? Went east for a little bit, put it on autopilot. Yeah, put it on autopilot. And um, in his own words, this is what he saw that day. The sky and air was clear as crystal. I hadn't flown more than two or three minutes on my course when a bright flash reflected on my airplane. It startled me as I thought I was too close to some other aircraft. I looked every place in the sky and couldn't find where the reflection had come from until I looked to the left and north of Mount Rainier, where I observed a chain of nine peculiar-looking aircraft flying from north to south at approximately 9,500-foot elevation and going seemingly in a definite direction of about 170 degrees. They were approaching Mount Rainier very rapidly, and I merely assumed they were jet planes. Anyhow, I discovered that this was where the reflection had come from, as two or three of them every few seconds would dip or change their course slightly, just enough for the sun to strike them at an angle that reflected brightly on my plane. I thought it was peculiar that I couldn't find the tails, but assumed they were some type of jet plane. I was determined to clock their speed as I had two definite points I could clock them by. The air was so clear I was very easy to see objects and determine their approximate shape and size at almost 50 miles that day. These objects were holding an almost constant elevation. They did not seem to be going up or coming down, such as would be the case of rockets or artillery shells. I am convinced in my mind that they were some type of airplane, even though they didn't conform with the many aspects of the conventional type of planes that I know. So basically, um, Ken is saying uh, he clocked these things by using uh, the two mountains, Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, as reference points. Uh, and he even used another plane uh, that was, uh, I think, to the south of him to measure their size. And after this, he kind of, he went and searched for the marine transport a little more, uh, and then he was becoming more and more, as he puts it, disturbed by what he had seen, and says it just sort of kept playing through his head again and again, so he decided he would report it as soon as he landed. Now, the media coverage of this thing was massive, so uh, first thing this guy does when he lands is tell somebody at the airport about what he had seen. Um, and, you know, he's like, hey, y'all, I just saw these nine uh, dislike shiny objects flying in formation, zooming in out these mountain peaks. <laughs> and, uh, he talked like that? I mean, that's just <laughs> what I assume. And actually, he did not talk because I have an audio clip we'll play a little later. Well, that but, would um, good to hear. Yeah, I mean, I liked your country accent on there. 
Um, <laughs> come to find out, um, the military reported no testing, experimentation, or involvement of any kind in the area at the time of Ken's sighting. And in Ken's own words, he says, I told a number of pilot friends of mine when I had observed, and they did not scoff or laugh at, but suggested they might be guided missiles or something new like that. In fact, several former armor pilots informed me that they had been briefed before going into combat overseas that they may see objects or similar shape and design as the ones that I had described, and assured me that I wasn't dreaming or going crazy. So um, then he's, he's like flying back home. Um, he gets to this other, he's like driving to this other airport and um, he busts out a map to measure the distance between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams in order to get like an estimate of the speed. And he concluded that where they traveled was about 50 miles in one minute, 45 seconds. So that's almost 1600 miles per hour. Jesus. Three times the speed of sound. And hella faster than anything at the time. Speed record in 1947. What do you guys think that was? Anyone? Anyone? Let's let's get a guess. Going. Wasn't that old Chuck? I don't know. But what do you think it was? Give me a number. 300. 300? Mm-hmm. What are you saying? 600. Oh, pretty close. Um, 624. Might as well round down to 600. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you do some research for this one? Maybe. <laughs> So, um, June 25th, 1947, an issue of Pendleton East Oregonian carried the first report of Arnold's sighting, and it stated this. Impossible. Maybe, but seeing is believing, says Flyer. Kenneth Arnold with the fire control at Boise and who was flying in southern Washington yesterday afternoon in search of missing marine plane, stopped here en route to Boise today with an unusual story, which he doesn't expect people to believe, but which he declared was true. He said he sighted nine saucer-like aircraft flying in formation at 3 p.m. yesterday, extremely bright, as if they were nickel-plated, and flying at an immense rate of speed. He estimated that there was an altitude between 9,500 and 10,000 feet and clocked from their Mount Rainier to Mount Adams, arriving at the amazing speed of 1,200 miles an hour. It seemed impossible, he said, but here it is. I must believe my eyes. So now this, obviously, is when the shitstorm ensues. Because, uh, you know, we all know once the media gets a hold of anything, it gets twisted, turned. Fake news. Oh, embellishments, um, yellow journalism, muckrakers, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever to sell papers. Now, do you think that it was worse in the 40s, in the late 40s? I mean, think about it, dude. By the time you heard the news, it was probably already old and uh, you had to go through and do your own research. You I feel like, if anything, it was probably better back then than it is nowadays because everyone... Less corrupt? Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm sure it still wasn't 100% real all the time, but I feel like there's just so many different media outlets that you can use mm-hmm. nowadays, and there's so many like fucked up people out there. But who knows? Oh. Could have been the same back then. Okay. Now, Ken says in his own words about the media... Now, the news that I observed these spread very rapidly, and before that night, I was over receiving telephone calls from all parts of the world, partner, and to date, (laughs) I have not received one telephone call or one letter or scoffing of disbelief. The only disbelief that I know of was printing those goddamn papers. (laughs) Now, other headlines at the time include... Buckeye salesman reports fast flying mystery planes. Find this mystery grows. Two Midwest men support Boise Fire. 
Harass Saucer said I would like to escape Foss. Buying Saucer Observer says no one can change his mind. Now, in one of these, I was, I, because I read all of these news clippings, um, very dry, very boring. It was the 40s, man. It was a different time. They referred to him as a flying fire extinguisher salesman. I what? mean, that's technically what he was. Badass, dude. What if that's on your business card? I'm going to put and that on mine. Bug eyed salesman. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, so, like, these sightings, these reports, this is where the actual term flying saucer was essentially coined. Now, I've heard there that it was actually used in the like 1930s, I think. It can be traced as early as 1930s. Um, but it became like super popular and spread into like mainstream sightings because Ken described the discs uh, he had seen to one reporter as they moved as a saucer if you skip across water. Mm. And basically, the headline guy at the newspaper just fucked up. Fake news, dude. Uh, oh yeah, and he said he said the description was mistakenly taken to mean the objects were shaped like saucers, um, and this led to the popularization of flying saucer. Whoa, he coined the term, so to speak. Yes, what he I just was saying. Coined. now of course as always the case with these sightings um they start flooding in um you know june 28th an f1 pilot spotted five circular objects at lake mead nevada june 29th a bus driver in des moines idaho saw four circular objects flash through the sky i thought that was iowa yeah oh des moines iowa uh, in Jacksonville, Oregon, a formation of saucers was seen by numerous people leaving church. Uh, and more than 20 reports came in from people in Washington state uh, claiming to see the same discs as Ken. Now, also estimates of over 850 UFO reports nationwide appear in the U.S. media by the end of July of 1947. Well, nobody wants to be the first one to sound crazy, but as soon as somebody else does, then, you might as well yeah. cash in. I mean, yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. Some people probably genuinely saw some. Other people want their 15 minutes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and obvi- of course, this is uh, around the time that Roswell hit the papers in uh, mid-July. And they're still milking that shit to date. <laughs> yeah, you know, hashtag me too. Uh, everybody, <laughs> everybody wants a notoriety. You know, the government's throwing out bullshit disinformation stories. People are are um, are are hoaxers, pranksters, bunch of savages. Uh, oh yeah, tons time. of bullshit to sift through. But there were a few sightings that seemed to match up and help corroborate. Is that your word of the week? Corroborate our pal is. Ken. Also, bit of an odd story and incident we'll get into, which plays further into the Ken Arnold mystery. Ken Arnold! (laughs) Now, aside from a few others claiming to have seen things from the ground the same day as Ken, um, this one, this actual sighting, Ken himself believes to be genuine. Uh, He says this is not someone trying to get attention. Um, This one didn't come until August of 1947. Uh, this is a prospector, an old prospector. Uh, he wrote to the military who had been uh, assigned to investigate. He says, you know, hey, I saw some weird shit too. So in a letter, he says that he was a prospector 
in Mount Adams District on June 24th. Now can we get a prospector voice? Um, if if you would want to go for it, give it a shot. Now I could say as a prospector in Mount Adams District on the 24th of June, the day <laughs> Kenneth Arnold of Boise, Idaho claims he saw the same formation of the flying discs. And I, I saw the same flying objects at the time, at the same time, having a telescope with me at the time. I can assure you that they are real and I have ne- never seen nothing like them before. Now, they did not pass very high over where I was standing at the time. Probably, no, sir, they did not. Probably a thousand feet, now I do say. They were around about 30 feet in diameter, tapering off sharply to a point in an oval shape with a bright top surface. <laughs> now, I did not hear any noise as you were from a plane. Now, here, not partner. Now, there was an object in the tail, and it looked like a big hand of a clock shifting from side to side like a big old magnet out there. And the speed, as far as I seemed, was greater than anything I ever saw. <laughs> now, that was uh, F.M. Johnson. Um, aside from this letter... Another big sighting that uh, Ken believes himself to be genuine and somehow connected to what he saw comes from a United Airlines captain, E.J. Smith, of UAL Flight 105, which was headed to Pendleton, Oregon, on the evening of July 4th, 1947. Now, this is when Smith claims... Now, before I read this, can we talk about something that I read that happened on an air... Like a flight recently, sure. or do you want me to wait? Oh this no no no, this? go for it. You you, you can. Uh, what what do we got? Okay, so I read about this okay. lady. I read about this lady on this flight. I said she was sitting in the middle. Her boyfriend was sitting next to her window, and the dude next to her was beaten off the whole time. And what? Yeah. First off, kudos to that guy for keeping it up that long. If that's what he was really doing, but then she says when the plane was about to land, like. He kind of knew that he got caught, so he like dipped like super quick. And when she reported to the airline, they paid her seventy five bucks to not talk about it, which obviously she did. Seventy five bucks. <laughs> yeah. Like, dude, first off, if someone's beaten off next to you on the airplane, wouldn't you just turn to them and be like, "Stop, dog, you're bumping my elbow." Well, depends. What do you have a blanket I, over? I, or, I uh, did not say, but like, you could have been still subtle. Know. Yeah, I, I, dude, she said she noticed him doing it for hours. Well, for like, maybe this lady was really doing some digging. <laughs> crazy for that one. Maybe, but I'm just saying, like, if you're that bothered, call a flight attendant, wake oh, up your boyfriend uh, right next to you. Like, come on, dog, or just stare at the guy. Maybe that even gets him going better. <laughs> well, then he would be done sooner, wouldn't he? <laughs> okay, so I don't think anything like that was happening on this flight. Let's hope uh, not. But this is uh, the story of UAL Flight 105, um, where Smith claims... We landed on DC-3 at Boise, Idaho shortly before 9 last night, and afraid to be late in schedule, we took off promptly at 9.04. The weather was perfect. It was a funny thing, but just before takeoff, as I was climbing aboard our DC-3, someone in the crowd piped up and asked me if I had seen any flying saucer. Up to this time, I not only hadn't seen any, but I really didn't believe there were such things, though I was polite to do the inquirer and yelled back at him that I would believe them when I saw them. Brother, you could have knocked me over with a feather when about eight minutes after takeoff, at exactly 7,100 feet over Emmett, Idaho, we saw not one but nine of them. Nine. 
At first, I thought it was a group of planes returning from some 4th of July celebration, but then I realized the things were an aircraft, but they were flat and circular. The first group of five appeared to open and close information, then veered to the left of the transport. At this time, I picked up my radio microphone and called the Ontario Oregon CAA radio communication station, which was about 45 miles north and west from Boise. I didn't tell them what I was seeing, but said, Step outside and look to the southwest about 15 miles and see what you can find. The operator came back over the microphone stating he saw nothing. At this time, my co-pilot informed me the first group of discs had disappeared. It was then the second group, three together, and the fourth off by itself appeared. So, nobody beaten off, <laughs> and this guy sees uh, these, you know, same type of discs, Arnold reports. Right off the bat, what do we think this is? Well, dude, I'm just saying, my first UFO experience, I saw three of them. Okay. So... Now, okay, okay, so let's go in, let's go in, if we will, to the skeptic corner. Um, Rob, this is your favorite part. This is you, buddy. Um, Scully, uh, some possible (laughs) explanations. So, this guy, Stuart Campbell, uh, I guess this guy was like a Neil deGrasse type astrophysicist back Mm. in the day. Um, He said that these objects could have been mirages of several snow-capped peaks in the Cascade Range caused by temperature uh, over several deep valleys in the line of sight. So, mm, that's far-fetched. He far-fetched. probably believes in global warming, too. <laughs> Maybe possible. Well, he probably thinks he's probably thing. a round-earth okay. shill as well. Yeah, well. Now, uh, <laughs> it's also argued... That Arnold might have uh, misidentified meteors. Mm. However, this guy Bruce. Oh Mac- yeah, meteors just fly around. <laughs> well, this guy <laughs> Bruce. In whatever pattern they want. <laughs> this guy Bruce Maccabee says that a meteor theory would require impossibly slow speeds at durations um, for brightly glowing meteors on a horizontal trajectory. So he's saying. Meteors that bright at the angle he saw them moving way too slow. Can't Mm. be. Impossible. Now, this guy James Easton suggested that Arnold may have misidentified pelicans. (laughs) Claiming that the birds, they live in the Washington region. Uh, They're pretty big. They have a pale underside that can reflect light and can fly at rather high altitudes. 10,000 feet. <laughs> Make sure they have their seatbelts fast and in their tray tables up. And um, now in response to this, Bruce Maccabee, this guy is also a pretty big UFO guy, um, says it is impossible for a bird to be as bright as reported by Arnold, and that birds, which could not fly as fast as Arnold's plane, would have steadily moved backwards, not forwards, as he reported, relative to his position. Mm. So we got another uh, debunker in the mix, this guy, Donald Menzel. Menzel. No no relation to Johnny. (laughs) No relation to Johnny. Um, He's a Harvard astronomer. Really like a douche already. And a UFO debunker. And he offered several possible explanations. One, they had seen clouds of snow blown from the mountains south of Mount Rainier. However, again, this guy Maccabee claims 
These snow clouds have hazy light, not mirror-like brilliance reported by Ken. Um, and further, the clouds could not be in the uh, they couldn't move in the rapid motion reported by Ken, nor would they account for Ken's first sighting the objects north of Rainier. Um, two, this guy also says, hey, he had seen orographic clouds or wave clouds. Uh, Maccabee strikes back again, claiming that this conflicted with testimony from Ken and others that the sky was clear and again, couldn't account for the object's reported brightness, rapid motion, or large angular region. Um, three, this guy Menzel again says, hey, they may have merely seen spots of water on the airplane's windows. Mm. Fuck off, dude. However, <laughs> uh, this is actually from one of the very early reports of the sighting. Ken, in his own words, says, well... A number of newsmen and experts suggest that I might have been seeing reflections or even a damn mirage. Now, this I know to be absolutely false as I observe these objects, not only through the glass of my airplane now, partner, but my airplane sideways where I could open my window and observe them with completely unobstructed view, without sunglasses, mind you. Now, J. Allen Hynek himself uh, analyzed Ken's initial report in Project Sign, concluding that, and I quote, there appears to be no astronomical explanation of the flying saucer stories. It is impossible to explain this incident away as sheer nonsense, if any credence at all is given to Mr. Arnold's integrity. And a little further on the matter, in the Hynek UFO report, Jay Allen reports that, and I quote, the chances of all the reports being hoaxes are minimal. For daylight discs have been witnessed by people from all walks of life whose collective integrity cannot be seriously questioned. Now, here is where things get, get weird. weird. Whoa, <laughs> so, that was weird. the Maury Island incident. Um, this event took place June 21st, a full three days before our buddy Ken's sighting. However, it was not reported until after the Arnold incident. Mm -hmm. And allegedly, the tale goes like this. So basically, Ken, he's palling around with Captain Smith. Uh, you know, they're buddies now. They're doing some amateur investigating, um, staying in touch. Uh, while this is going on, Ken is visited by two Air Force officers, two intelligence officers investigating on behalf of the military. They go through his mail, um, advise him, you know, hey, don't, don't be sharing this sighting with anyone um, and they take an official and thorough report, which is where the story we read earlier was pulled from. And it is around this time that Mr. R.A. Palmer of Venture Press uh, writes... Avenger Press? Of Venture Press. I'm just kidding. Just great, kidding. great joke. <laughs> now, uh, he's interested in Ken's initial story. So he writes him, asking for a report. Ken's like, hey, what the hell? I'll give him the same report I gave the Air Force stiffs. <laughs> so he sends off the, the same report. And this guy, Palmer, uh, wants to investigate the authenticity of a sighting he's heard about by two harbor patrolmen, Harold A. Dahl and Fred L. Crisman. 
Um, this occurred. This alleged event occurred in Tacoma, Washington, and these guys allegedly had material from a UFO. So Palmer, alleged. yeah, alleged. So Palmer, um, he's got to get to the bottom of this, and he writes none other than our buddy Kenneth Arnold uh, to get him to go investigate this mm. thing. You know, he's like, hey, uh, pff, you know. You're you're doing some investigating already. You got a plane. Fly over to Tacoma. I'll give you some money. And um, Ken initially is put off by this, but figures, hell, let me see if this guy's for real. He asked him to wire him the money. Receives two hundred bucks at Western Union the next day. That's about uh, twenty two hundred dollars in today's money. Not bad for a guy who'd never found anything besides aliens in the sky. They didn't find that marine plane they were looking for. Didn't get the 5K. Figures he'll settle for two. Um, Obviously, Ken's like, fuck yeah. Uh, He's fueling up his plane. And he's headed to Tacoma on July 29th, 1947, around 5.30 in the morning. Uh, And he only apparently only told his wife about these plans. Uh, So he lands his plane at a small airfield run by this guy Barry and his wife and apparently this guy's wife keeps mentioning hey it's going to be tough to get a room in Tacoma they got a housing issues i mean I, I don't know what that's all about but uh he gets into Tacoma at dusk starts calling around for rooms and he finds it odd that at the Winthrop they had already had a room in his name mm. he's convinced this is some kind of mistake um, he goes there, gets the room, uh, calls up this guy Dahl, and he's basically having to like, he's like, hey, uh, I ain't, Dahl is at first like, I ain't talking, um, I'm staying out of this, you should stay out of this too. Uh, he tells him uh, he's had a streak of bad luck ever since the sighting. Uh, he tells him Ken's in over his head, etc., etc. Finally, this guy agrees to meet him. Um, and he talks with him for a while before getting the whole story, which is um, Dahl. He's out on his boat with uh, two co-workers, his son and dog, in the Puget Sound near Maury Island. Um, and Ken said in his book, he says, This was the story that Harold A. Dahl relayed to me on the evening of July 29th, 1947, in room 502 in the Winthrop Hotel Tacoma, Washington. As I looked up from the wheel of my boat, I noticed six very large donut-shaped aircraft. I would judge they were about 2,000 feet above the water and almost directly overhead. At first glance, I thought them to be balloons as they seemed to be stationary. However, upon further observance, five of these strange aircraft were circling very slowly around the sixth one, which was stationary in the center of the formation. It appeared to me that the center aircraft was in some kind of trouble as it was losing altitude fairly rapidly. All on board our boat were watching these aircraft with a great deal of interest as they apparently had no motors, propellers, or any visible signs of propulsion, and to the best of our hearing, they made no sound. We were afraid the center balloon was going to crash in the bay, and just a little while before it stopped lowering, we had pulled our boat over to the beach and got out. After about five or six minutes, one of the aircraft from the circling formation left its place in the formation and lowered itself down right next to the stationary aircraft. In fact, it appeared to touch it and stay stationary next to the center aircraft as if it were given some kind of assistance for about three or four minutes. It was then that we heard a dull thud, like an underground explosion or a thud similar to a man stamping his heel on damp ground. 
Immediately following this sound, the center aircraft began spewing forth what seemed like thousands of newspapers from somewhere on the inside of its center. These newspapers, which turned out to be a white type of very lightweight metal, fluttered to earth, most of them landing in the bay. It then seemed to hail on us, in the bay and over the beach, black or darker type metal which seemed similar to lava rock. We did not know if this metal was coming from the aircraft, but assumed that it was. All of these later fragments seemed hot, almost molten. When they hit the bay, steam rose from the water. We ran to the shelter under a cliff on the beach and behind logs to protect ourselves from the falling debris. In spite of our precaution, my son's arm was injured by one of the following fragments and our dog was hit and killed. Sad face. After his reign of metal seemed over, all of these strange aircraft lifted slowly and drifted out to the westward, which is out to sea. They rose and disappeared at a tremendous height. Now, I'm not, it's no secret, I ain't from uh, Washington. Mm -hmm. Does everybody up there have a southern accent? Is that the theme <laughs> tonight? <laughs> Is that, Is that You started it, motherfucker. Me? I yeah. did not. That was me. Ah, oh, I the guy from Washington starts the Southern accent. Y'all come on back now, you hip. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next morning, Doll got a call from a gentleman wanting to meet him for breakfast. Doll got a call. Now, since he was a a lumber salesman, this wasn't really out of the ordinary. However, what are we thinking? Who are we thinking this guy is? There's only one guy like. That I know that likes to go out to breakfast in the morning, and that's Rob. So probably a mistake on Doll's part by meeting this guy. Come on, guys. What, he's going to pay for breakfast. What goes hand in hand with UFO sightings? Who's always reported coming, snooping around after him? Will Smith. Men in black. There we go. <laughs> so he reported the gentleman as being in his 40s, wearing a black suit, driving a black Buick sedan. Listening to some black metal. <laughs> they sat down for breakfast. And had a black coffee. And this guy. <laughs> they sit down for breakfast. And this guy immediately started telling him details of the sighting from the day before. And details that Dahl himself hadn't told anyone. And then he says. What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will to believe. So this man proceeded to tell Dahl that if he loved his family and didn't want anything to happen to his general welfare, he would not discuss his experience with anyone. So when Dahl went to work that morning, he didn't tell anybody about the experience like he had planned to do. So Ken's thinking at this point, you know, what the fuck? Uh, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, Dahl asked, hey, I've got some fragments from the ship. Why don't you come by, take a look at them? Um, now, it's my understanding that Ken just wanted to get to the bottom of this mystery of these discs. So he's like, uh, yeah, I guess I'm already here. Fuck it. Mm. Um, he goes to this guy's house and he writes like extensively in the book, like the description of the house. I mean, this guy, he's no fucking Bill Shakespeare. And, <laughs> um, That's called filler, my bud. No Steven Spiel, homie. You ever written a novel? It's a lot. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't have to be that boring. Oh, how's your novel coming along? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, how's the uh, novel you've been working on? Huh? So he, this guy, he goes to this guy's house and Dahl hands this guy one of the fragments and says, Here's one of the fragments from Maury Island. We've been using it as an ashtray. 
<laughs> I mean, that's what you're going to do with a piece of what you think is like from a UFO. Oh, <laughs> dude, this would be a sick ashtray. <laughs> Maybe he's a stoner, dude. That's like making a bong in fucking. <laughs> yeah. So this guy is using an alien uh, fragment from a ship as an ashtray. And um, this other guy, Fred L. Chrisman, has a whole box of this stuff. And he's going to bring it over. Apparently, this guy was a doll's boss, and he told him. And then he went to go get a box of this stuff because he thought this guy was drunk and, like, fucked up the ship. Um, so he's got a whole box of this stuff. And by this point, Captain Smith from earlier has now met up uh, to do some investigating with Ken. And uh, while they're waiting for this box of stuff, they get a strange phone call. And essentially, this anonymous caller calls the room where Ken and Smith are. They're sharing all these crazy stories and he tells them like everything, like stuff that only someone could know if they were in the room. So they think their room's tapped. They tear the room. Yeah, exactly. They tear through the room, uh, find nothing. Tin foil hats, fellas. You get nothing. (laughs) So (laughs) Chrisman arrives, uh, sure enough with a box filled with this rock, this lava rock (laughs) and this white metal. What's up with the lava, dude? Lava. Oh, this. Ah, uh, here's some lava rock, dude. That's what Ken has an ashtray. Yeah, Ken said it was just like lava rock. He's like, "What the hell? This is not. This is not an alien. This is not from an alien ship, dude. It's lava rock. You're using it as a fucking ashtray. Get out of here." Ooh, maybe it could have count come from Mount St. Helens right there. Ah, uh, maybe, man. Mm. So, uh, right from the jump, um, they sort of suspect a hoax. Um, Ken and Smith, but anywho. Ken calls up the two Air Force officers who visited him earlier, Lieutenant Frank M. Brown and Captain William Davidson, to come investigate further. Now, also, some people say, like, by this time, the military thought that, uh, like, the Russians were involved, just like we were saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you've got the the Iron Curtain is closing in 1947. Communism setting in. Um, it's the beginnings of the Cold War, Right. Right. So, of course, uh, the paranoia is beginning to set in that it's Russians. So they, um, they take accounts of the incident when they get there, these Air Force gentlemen, examine the materials, and leave that night with the box of metal and rock fragments. And around 9.20 a.m. the next day, Ken gets a call explaining that a B-25 exploded and crashed some 20 minutes after takeoff from McCord Field. At 1.30 that morning. And that was in fact the plane that Davidson and Brown were aboard. With the entire box of metal fragments. My mind is blown right now. Now the official military explanation of the B-25 bomber was accident caused by the loss of an exhaust collector ring on the left engine. Smells like a setup. I mean, what are we thinking there? I'm, uh, again, no mechanic, but <laughs> I assume maybe these collectoring could easily be tampered with, right? Maybe it was a kamikaze mission. Men in black were driving. Eminem wrote about it. Ejected themselves. Boom. Now, possible hoax, maybe, but, I mean, hoax or not, two guys are dead. After this happened, Ken and Smith are both like, fuck this. They go back to Idaho. 
Um, both Dahl and Chrisman have denied their previous stories. They've even said the entire thing was a hoax or they're just saying that to save their own asses. I think it was Dahl said like, hey, the whole thing was a hoax, but then came out and said he was just scared. You know, I mean, they're murking people over here. And in this book, The Coming of the Saucers, where a lot of this comes from, um, written by Ken, he expands on this story a whole lot. There's a, there's way more detail. Um, and yeah, a lot of it's kind of boring. No, no uh, Bill Shakespeare. However, he suspected a hoax, but he also doesn't deny possible involvement by secret government agencies. So let's take a look at this for ourselves. A lot of jelly in these donuts, you know? Let's <laughs> let's analyze all of it. So both of these guys, Chrisman and Dahl, were shady characters. It's never been proven that either of them worked as harbor patrolmen, and the story was not reported until after w- the widespread news of Ken sighting. The other crewmen in the boat were never named or tracked down. Damage on the boat that they examined, um, Ken and Smith both went out to like look at the boat, didn't really match up with their story. But still, who booked the hotel room for Ken that night? And who was the anonymous caller? Who was the anonymous caller to, that knew so much? And just who was that? And furthermore, Ken claims that after this sighting, he went back to that house where he was using the lava rock as an ashtray, <gasps> completely empty. Nothing in the house. Well, yeah, that guy probably just got the fuck out of there. In one day? He says it would have been impossible for that guy himself to, like... Impossible. (laughs) Clean the whole house. There was no... He thinks, like, he just, you know, misdirections, you know? Hey, it was night. Maybe I got the wrong house. But he's like, there was no other houses around there, anywhere close to there, that looked like that. He was possible it was the same one. One explanation that Ken does claim was given by Dahl. In his book, he says Dahl said he had received an anonymous letter that told him the flying discs were actually manned by otherworldly beings and due to the radiation now released in the atmosphere from atomic explosions that had caused these beings to become visible to us on Earth. These flying discs, which were all shapes and sizes, were the vehicles which the gods of this earth used to protect this earth from outside dark influences or enemies, and that flying discs were under severe attack by other beings who were enemies of the people and life on this planet. Now that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> this guy Dahl also claims that uh, he was shot at with like a phaser gun in a cave in World War II. Yikes. <laughs> and uh maybe that's some, maybe that's something you keep to yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, still doesn't explain some of this stuff. However, one of the more significant findings is Chrisman's alleged links to the intelligence community. Now, it's no secret 1947, what do we get the creation of? CIA. CIA. In 1968, Fred Crisman was subpoenaed by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison as part of Garrison's investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy. Now, can I just say, Crisman, C-R-I-S-M-A-N. It is a C, two letters, an I, two letters, an A. C I A. (laughs) Coincidence? I think think not. not. You're on to something. So, in a report titled The Torbit Document, 
Chrisman is named as one of the three tramps picked up in the rail yard behind the grassy knoll at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, where some believe a second gunman was located during the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Sounds like a game of Clue. (laughs) That's life, man. Chrisman, possibly one of the second shooters on the grassy knoll. Boom. I mean, this whole thing was counterintelligence. This is textbook disinformation operation planned by the government implement rumors, half-truths, um, concluding Maury Island case was a hoax all along, and covering up one of the most significant UFO encounters in history. Mm. Mm. What are we thinking, guys? Come on. It's no secret that the CIA is full of shit and try to cover up every little goddamn thing like this that happens. So wouldn't be any surprise to me that this guy has some involvement in the JFK assassination. And a UFO cover-up. Yeah. Now, it's no surprise that there's no IN team, but there is an IN CIA and in Flying Saucer. And some debate if that I should even be in there, because are they really intelligent? Hmm. We'll let you decide. So, um, that's your thoughts. You guys are just going to write this off as another joke. I mean, I don't think it's a joke. I just think that... These guys are just trying to fucking scare everyone that actually sees something into just shutting up so that they don't have to go on a full-blown explanation that there actually is aliens out there. Now, some say that this whole... um, They'd rather scare one person than have a whole country of scared people. Send a message. They're saying the whole uh, Maury Island affair was set up by the CIA to um, overshadow... Kind of downplay. This Arnold sighting. Then Roswell throw him off the case, and then mm-hmm. Roswell just shit on them. Oh yeah, I mean this Arnold guy. Oh yeah, and they're like, I bet the CIA is like, God damn it! Like, come on, aliens, stop <laughs> getting seen, <laughs> so that we don't have to keep oh, covering. We just this. spent like five million dollars on this damn cover up. God, get your shit together. I just imagine like, uh, who's the guy that dressed up in the high in, in his mom's clothes and shit? J. Edgar Hoover. I bet he was sitting there like, come on. Just imagine him like reprimanding an alien. God, God damn it. <laughs> Again, guys, it's the third time this week. Galaxor, in my office now. <laughs> I swear to God, if he cancels this fucking meeting again. What the fuck were you doing? Crashing in New Mexico? <laughs> guys, guys, you honestly need to get better pilots out there. They're getting seen all over the goddamn place. Now, Ken himself... Nine at a time. Nine at a time in Washington. Are you fucking kidding me? This guy... One star rating. This guy, Ken, um, his life was severely impacted by this thing. I mean, huge widespread reports. Um, This guy, Ken, he says he almost came like a, a little celebrity. Like anywhere he went, someone was trying to get his story. And he was like, hey, I don't want any of this. I just want to sell my fire extinguishers and fly my little plane around. And here I am. Um, I'm like fucking Justin Bieber everywhere I go. Almost like a celebrity. What did people just look for the bug eyed guy and they knew? I guess. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think he said there was like crowds any, any time he would land. And, uh, he was always having to like explain a story. This guy even dropped off the map. Um, this also huge impact on the UFO community. I mean, like we said, this kind of dictated the way that we thought about UFOs from here on out. 
I mean, previous to this, everybody thought it was like Russians or like some other foreign military. And then these news stories start dropping. And a lot of them at first don't mention extraterrestrials. And then people all of a sudden are like, hey, maybe these these things are some fucking space aliens. Um, you As know, opposed to other kind of aliens? <laughs> I mean, they, it could be like hollow earth aliens. Yep, yep. Um, Mount Shasta. Ken went on to uh, continue investigating cases uh, here and there in order to sort things out. I mean, he was completely mind-blown by this thing, and no one's paying attention to him. Like I said, he completely dropped off the map by the 1960s, declining all interviews. However, he did give one interview in 1977 in which, um, I mean, he's not happy about how all the investigations into UFOs as a whole were handled by the government. I mean, uh, here we go. Let's just listen uh, to Ken himself. It's easy to see that after 30 years, he's still angry at the disbelief. Right here, we've seen something. I've seen something. Hundreds of pilots have seen something in the skies. We have dutifully reported these things. And we have to have 15 million witnesses before anybody's going to look into the problem seriously. Why, this is utterly fantastic. This is more fantastic than than flying saucers or, or people from Venus or anything, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, he's saying, come on, guys. And just like um, us, he can't read. He's, he's trying to have a rational conversation. Yeah, and he's like, come on. Like, uh, what do you need, a fucking body? <laughs> <laughs> but, well, we got a couple of those in New Mexico, boys. Independence Day. And, guys, actually, pour one out. Um, this guy, our pal, old Ken, passed away. On January 16th, 1984, at age 68 in Bellevue, Washington. Oh. Um, actu- Someday they will catch him. Now, oh, actually, he free. his Call Air A2 airplane um, that he spotted, that he made the first sighting in back in 1947, still exists. Uh, it's currently at the North Cascade Vintage Aircraft Museum in Concrete, Washington, and is still in excellent flying condition. Ooh, let's go check that out. Um, so, I mean, there you have it. Definitely something going on. We can't deny that. I mean, let us know what you guys think. Um, I mean, hey, if any listeners out there have had any UFO um, sightings, any close encounters, uh, shoot us a message. Let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear some feedback from you guys. Um, or let us know what you think on this case as a whole. Um, a lot of this case is, um, you know, written off as a hoax. A lot of people say, hey, it's just a hoax, just like the government wanted. Um, not a lot of people know about this one. So there you have it. And, you know, if you are getting to us with that feedback, podcastfromouterspace at gmail.com is our email address. Or, you know, if you're on the gram, go ahead and hit us up, podcastfromouterspace. Sliding those DMs, get some stickers while you're at it, you know? Still got those. Throwing them out like hot cakes. Lots of good feedback and response from you guys lately. We love interacting with you guys, so keep that coming. Hopefully like coming, some, coming? Yeah. Hopefully I have some good stuff like t-shirts for you guys coming here real soon. Some iron-ons, some press-ons. I think at this point, we should just never have t-shirts. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've been well, saying it for so long. We'll make one and it's like a limited edition. <laughs> yeah. It'll be like that. a $100 t-shirt. It'll be like that Wu-Tang CD. <laughs> $5 million. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anyways, thank you guys for listening. And uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. See you.